day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday, the 10th of October. It's the 10th of the 10th, 2023. And our topics this week are Australians are losing billions of dollars to pokies. Billions more than before the pandemic. We have a problem, ladies and gentlemen. We are addicted to gambling. And where where are our urgent care clinics? We spoke about this earlier in the year in May about urgent care clinics being built as part of the Medicare reforms. Not a lot have been built. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deed and finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up on the last week. Ardeet, what's been going on with you? G'day, DK. Uh, it's been a reasonably under, uneventful week for me, although Pickleball this morning took a... Um, a very undignified spill going <laughs> after a, a ball. You know, as an adult, it's not often that you you fall over. Oh, no. <laughs> so, look, fortunately, um, uh, fortunately, I could feel myself falling and was able to, yeah, sort of do a half full roll a bit. And I think I'll come up with a nice bruise on the the knee and elbow. But yeah, it's one of those it's one of those things that when you you hit the ground. You sort of think, oh, God, this hasn't happened for a while. It's, <laughs> and I remember why I don't like it very much. But look, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, you definitely hit the ground a lot harder oh, when you're an gosh. adult than you do when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah, you, you do. You do. <laughs> yeah, it's a big thump. But look, aside from that, been getting, uh, that's just gardening stuff, been getting in the uh, tomatoes. I had, uh, I think I've mentioned before that I've, I've been playing around with a, a hugel culture. Yes, you have. Yes. Yeah. So I decided that this year or this season, all the tomatoes will go on on there. I've, I've enriched it with a bit more soil and mulch and, and stuff. So built myself a, a lattice out of the. We've got some uh, bamboo, and that makes some good uh, good wood and structure for for lattices. So I've got about I've got about nine different uh, varieties of tomatoes this year, and. One of them is from the uh, guy who used to be the station master at Frankston. This, oh yes, yeah. There's a bloke down. There's a bloke down the the road who's who's a really good gardener. I get a lot of tips from him, and he uh, grew some seedlings in his uh, uh, greenhouse. And this is apparently a variety. He calls it Frank from Frankston's uh, tomato <laughs> variety. And that this guy sort of developed himself. There's a lot of. T- oh, I can't remember how many recognised varieties of tomatoes. Yeah, there's there's a like lot. Two thousand, three thousand, some absurd amount. Anyway, this I'll I'll let you know how the let you know once once the things start fruiting whether Frank from Frankston's got this. But I sort of I sort of like having a a bit of a local tie. I he's the same bloke who'd given me the seeds to uh, a pumpkin that was developed by somebody. Down here on the Mornington Peninsula, Peninsula Pearl, um, number of years ago, that he just happened to find by fluke in a, a mate's uh, compost bin. So I sort of figure if I can continue that on, yeah, maybe I'll give. Um, I mean, we don't don't have kids, but you know, there's people around here might be able to give them uh, 
peninsula-based heirloom variety vegetables. I'd get that a would be that's cool. That's no, yeah. that's cool. I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about you? What are you been up to? I gave blood this week. Uh, oh, well this last week, last Thursday. Um, it is a regular thing for me. I apparently I'm up to thirty donations, which doesn't sound like a very big number, but you got to remember you can only do it four times a year uh, because you can only do it uh, every every quarter basically. Uh, and so I've been doing it for for quite a few years, obviously. Um, and I just got the text message just a few minutes ago saying that my blood was on the way. Uh, it's being delivered to Wesley Hospital, which is in Brisbane, uh, to be used, uh, you know, as as blood products are for someone in a in a a, a bad way, or perhaps um, uh, you know, like a mother giving birth, or a car accident, mm. or any number of things. Um, so that's a bit cool. I do like is, that. Is that the, regular, like, do you, is that something that you have received before a, a text message about your blood? Yes. Yes. Oh. So if I look back, oh no, it comes from a different number, uh, every, every time it, it seems, but the last one I got was sent to, uh, I think it was Rockhampton or maybe it was Townsville. I can't remember. Um, both of those are pretty large regional cities in Northern Queensland. Uh, in other times it's been down on the sunshine Coast. it all stays within Queensland. Uh, and I did have, uh, one go all the way to Cairns, uh, which Ooh. is quite a, quite a way from, from where I am. Um, so it kind of just goes obviously wherever it's needed, but it is cool to know that it, um, you know, it's it. They give you a text to say it kind of went to this region, and and it basically my blood has been used all over the east coast of Queensland, which is pretty cool. Um, Very good. Yeah, so I really liked the Red Cross uh, did this. They started doing it a few years ago. Um, obviously, you don't get any other information other than the location or what hospital it was transferred to. Um, for privacy reasons, yeah. obviously. Uh, but no, it is kind of cool. It gives you a bit more of a... Because you go in, you do your thing and that, and they say, oh, it saves so many people's lives. I think it's three people's lives every time you give blood because they can use the blood for blood products and all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's all well and good, but of course you never get to to, to put a to, to put a face to the name or anything like that. But but now because they do give you that little bit of extra information, it kind of does give you the warm and fuzzies um, about it. It's a good it, so. bit of marketing and it's encouraging. It, well, definitely. Great yeah, effort. Definitely. So if you haven't given blood, if you're – I apologise, there is a fire truck driving past <laughs> my house right now. Um, if you – they might need some blood uh, where they're going. So (laughs) if you are listening, I always talk to people about this and say, I give blood. I regularly give blood. Um, And most people say, Oh, I've been, I should do that. I should give it a go. You know? Um, And I think, I think there's a lot of people that kind of just, eh, it's a bit hard or, you know, you never get around to actually doing it, pulling the trigger, as I like to say, and actually going and doing it. If you're listening, Take this opportunity. Go and do it. You can actually book all online. You don't have to call. You don't have to do anything. Just go to the just Google Red Cross Red Cross Blood. Go there. Sign up. Book it online. 
uh, at a time that suits you, go on and give it a go. They'll tell you if you're ineligible. So if you're not sure, just go yep. and have a look. They'll tell you. And you can give blood, save a life. Um, they yeah, do like pretty, plasma. Pretty good they easy. do like, yeah, they like plasma more these days, which you can do every two weeks because they can build, they can do medicines and other products and things like that with it. Um, I just give whole blood because. I feel like that's enough. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, look, I got my plasma donation tomorrow. Um, I do, I do mine once a month. Um, two weeks is is more than what I want to want to give, but I think I figure once a a month. So yeah, I can I can back up what you're saying. It's a pretty straightforward process. I wasn't a hundred percent sure whether I'd qualify because of different things, but the way the rules are and their ability to test things you know um it 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 change it, it's it's changed a whole lot and it's really simple so yeah i'd back up what you're saying yeah no reason not to get out there and do it you've heard it here um <laughs> let's podcast on. now log on to log yeah, on to the red cross site it. check it out yeah if you're listening in your car pull over get out your phone <laughs> yeah. doing it. speaking of australians losing things huh. australians have been losing billions billions with a b more money to pokies during the cost of living crisis that we're currently living through than they were prior to the pandemic so let's kick this off with some statistics because everyone knows that a, <laughs> a way to keep an audience listening and entertained is to throw lots of numbers at them immediately. Um, <laughs> in, <laughs> in New South Wales, an average of $22 million was lost to pokey machines each day during the first six months of 2023. That's it's 22. insane, isn't it? I knew they were going to be horrendous, but that's just insane. $22 million per day. That's crazy. Totaled over $3.9 billion in that period. In Queensland, residents lost $3.24 billion last financial year compared to uh, $2.4 billion in 2018-2019. That's increased more than 33%. In Victoria, losses have incre increased 12%. Some rookie numbers, Victoria. Um, they've gone up to three billion, but in South Australia, they've jumped thirty-four percent to nine hundred and seventeen million. We have a gambling problem, uh, and like we need to to get serious for a second. We actually really need to thank Monash University's Gambling and Social Detriments Unit for their analysis of all of these figures and the data that we're going to talk about today. Um, but we, we seriously have a gambling problem. Monash, Monash University's Associate Professor Charles Livingston said that he wasn't surprised gambling losses had increased during the cost of living crisis because people gamble when they're desperate. He goes on to say, desperate people often turn to desperate measures and some people unfortunately think they have the opportunity to win something. The prevailing reason for this is people under stress are more likely to develop a gambling habit as it relieves their stress, and that's the same reason why there are so many poker machines in areas of disadvantage. I want you to think about it. 
everyone that's listening to this, think about all the pubs and clubs that have massive gaming rooms full of poker machines. Are they located in upper class areas of your town, city, or are they located where generally the poorer, maybe the pensioners? I think we all know the answer to that. The chief executive of the charity Wesley Mission, Reverend Stu Cameron, has also assessed the latest New South Wales data. He said the lost money should have helped families weather the cost of living crisis, but instead has gone to propping up harmful and predatory industry. He says the pain of broken individuals and families and the harm caused to communities behind these numbers is immense. Losses of the scale underpin the urgency for sensible, proportionate, and effective reforms. Wesley Mission said the number of poker machines in New South Wales jumped from 86,650 to 87,298 last financial year. That's 600 and just under 650 machines more in a 12-month period. The overall numbers of machines have been trending downward from 2019. So this reversal is particularly disturbing, particularly when the current cap for poker machines in New South Wales is 96,000. In June, the New South Wales government was accused of bowing to pressure from the gambling lobbyists after confirming its promised expanded cashless gaming trial was delayed. This was... uh, a trial where you couldn't just put money into the machine. You couldn't just go in and throw a $50, $100 bill into the machine. You had to load up a, a gaming card with cash prior and uh, then go and get okay. it. Okay. So this, in its essentially, this felt like it was a small step that made people maybe double think about what they were doing. Um, but, the gambling lobbyists successfully got the New South Wales to delay the expansion of the trial. A month earlier than this, so in May, the New South Wales government received a report that found almost two-thirds of people who played poker machines into the early morning were problem gamblers or at moderate risk of developing a problem. Victoria's Parliamentary Budget Office has forecast that overall gambling losses will increase to $6.7 billion by 2026-2027, up from around $6 billion in the most recent financial year. The governments know we have a problem. The governments are not doing anything about them. I personally hate pokey machines. I think it's a disease on our culture. Uh, I hate the fact that my local RSL used to be about veterans and now it is basically a casino. Um, as a young veteran myself, there is nothing for me at the RSL. I don't go to the RSL. Uh, it's basically a waste of time. Uh, the primary people that are in there are older pensioners They go there because the meals are cheap and they sit on the pokies for hours and hours and they just lose money. And it's just, frankly, it's just disgusting. Um, I'm not a big one for telling people what to do and how to spend their money, 
but this is predatory. This has gone beyond, you know, like like uh, chief executive of Wesley Mission, Reverend Stu Cameron said, I think the scale underpin the urgency for sensible, proportionate and effective reform. And I think that's a really sensible way to look at this. We have a problem and we need, we genuinely need to do something about this. Yeah, they're just like, uh, they are insane losses. Uh, I, uh, as a principal, I don't have any issue with people um, gambling. Uh, I have issues with special licenses being given to select organisations, casinos, pubs. Um, it makes uh, yeah that amount of money concentrated by in amongst politicians and their mates makes for corruption. So it's no surprise to me that over the last, well, I mean, pokies have been, I've, ever since I've been aware of pokies, I've been aware that they've been a problem. You know, I've had friends, I've had um, relatives who've had problems with, uh, with, with pokies, and there's always this constant thing of, oh, we really should do something about it, but the money flows into the lobbyists, the money flows into the mates of the government, and the government makes their cut out of it as well. So I don't hold a lot of hope. Yeah. The problem with pokies, and, and look, as I said, gambling in principle, I think adults are entitled to do what they they want with their money. The problem with pokies is it has become a computerized, rapid A-B testing uh, style of uh, human stimulation that's similar to what we see in how the news industry has been destroyed by seeking clicks and social media has become a an algorithm for for likes. That that same bloke, Dr. Livingston, the gambling researcher from uh, Monash Uni, there's another article from the ABC, I it was in September about it, the Crown Perth Casino Royal Commission. And they te- the te- Crown Perth, sorry, WA technically doesn't have pokies, but they've got electronic gaming machines that you know, are, are so similar um, that they get sort of grouped together. But he, he said in this, uh, where are we? Uh, yeah. Dr. Livingston said the two types of machines were also addictive in the same way by activating the brain's reward system and reinforcing gambling behavior. The people that make these machines have what amounts to an enormous laboratory to test them out on. That is, all the pundits in the world who use poker machines, slot machines, EGMs in casinos, clubs and pubs, and so on. And here's the key question, and they are being endlessly refined and developed. And that, to me, is the problem, the big, big problem with poker machines and why, despite my uh, more sort of uh, freedom view, if they came out and said, we're scrapping pokies, but the other... uh, forms of gambling stay i wouldn't lose a hell of a lot of sleep over that because they're they're insidious devices they're like you said they're designed to be addictive and they're also designed unlike other um other other gambling like like actually going to a casino and playing poker or going to a casino and playing blackjack or or roulette um 
there's there's a certain degree well probably not with roulette but there is a certain degree of skill required to to play these games and also that you depending on your skill level you may not um the house may not have a complete you know they they obviously have an advantage over you yep. um but but pokey machines these gaming machines are literally rigged against you they're not they're not fair in any way but people seemingly think that they are and i'm like that's not how this works at all you will lose your money don't obviously there are winnings people win and and there are minor jackpots and things like that but the amount of people and some of you that are listening are probably going oh i've put 20 bucks in and i pull out 50 bucks and you know and of sure of course but that's what they're designed to do they're designed to kind of feed you until at the end of the night how often have you put 50 bucks 100 bucks into a pokey machine and how often have you actually left up and the nights i'm sure there's a lot of people yelling at their cars right now going yeah that happened to me the other night and i won and i was up and everything like that yeah okay sure there's been a handful of times where you have one and you're up yep but how many times has that not happened where you've put 50 bucks in it's gone you didn't win really anything at all and that's it. And you go and back to the bar and you buy another drink and you just carry on with your night. That's probably happened considerably more. I mean, we know it is. We've got the numbers here in front of us. Um, yeah. that then, But this is the problem with these machines is, like you said, they are endlessly refined to be uh, addictive as possible. Uh, to give you that feedback, that dopamine hit, like you said, you 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 were saying, talking about um, social media, just like social media is. These companies, they know they're using our psychology against us to just get your money. Because at the end of the day, that's what they want. They don't want to entertain you. They want to take your money. Um, there is no skill involved with slapping a button. You're playing a random number generator and it's got flashy lights. That's it. This, the, the whole system's rigged against you. Uh, and I think everyone kind of knows that, but they don't like to see that as it is. Australians. No, I it's, uh, uh, sorry, I'll just, I have, um, I've certainly been, I've certainly been out um, and played pokies in that, that situation where it's been, you know, you're with, with a couple of blokes. And everyone chucks in ten bucks or twenty bucks, and you do that, and the consensus is, well, we're going to lose this. Let's see how long we can make it last. And that's um, when was the last time I did that? Well, last year. Um, I think the last time before that was the year before. It might have been on a, a hunting trip or something. So I've certainly, I've certainly done that, but it's been, it's been a case of. Um, Right, this is what we're put, what we're putting down to to lose, and I'd say overall, uh, all up, we've obviously lost lost most of it. But it's, the fun has been how long can we make that little bit last? But it's interesting playing that, and you look at the things, and even though you know it's bullshit, you sort of think, oh, I'm getting a feeling for this machine. Oh, I can see those coming together, and the lights and the flashing. Even when you know you're being bullshitted to, still draw you in. Even with, and I think God, it's it's no wonder that people think, oh, I'll just put in a bit more, put in a bit more. Particularly if there's uh, not someone around the say, no bugger that. <laughs> we 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 did our ten bucks. That's what we agreed on. Um, let's let's just uh, move away. 
Yeah, and there's that we call it the sunk uh, sunk cost fund. Cost yeah, the fallacy where you go, oh well, I've already put fifty in. It's it's more likely to pay out if I keep going. So you put more money in, um, and they really thrive on that that sort of mentality of oh, just one more, just one more, just one more, um, which is kind of gambling in a nutshell, really, but. The fact that these figures, we're in a cost of living crisis. And before that, we're in a global pandemic that, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people were in dire financial situations or and or were drawing out of their super and, and all the rest. Yeah. Yet we're oh. seeing that last financial year, Australians lost over $10 billion to these electronic gaming machines, which is absolutely horrendous. And uh, several of my previous clients were pub owners, publicans, and they had a number of pubs, and these pubs had gaming rooms, uh, like they all seemingly do now. Uh, and he told me that the, on average, the pub's revenue of food, so these had restaurants as well. So, restaurants, bars, gaming room. The restaurant and bar was about half of the revenue for that business. The other half came exclusively from the gaming room. Wow! So there's a lot of money in this. They know what they're doing. Yep. He also told me a sneaky little <laughs> sneaky behind the curtain thing. They can decide. The pub can decide how often those machines pay out. Right. I have heard that, that there's some level of tweaking in there. Yep. So it is, it is, it's not, it's not quite like they'll do it every five times or whatever, but there is, you can, you can, there's a dial of the algorithm to be pay out more, pay out less. Um, and so, so when I say it's rigged, I know it's rigged. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, it's not a conspiracy. I'm telling you right now, it is rigged. You are never going to get rich playing the pokey, those gaming machines, period. Yeah, I think if you've got, um, I don't, I'm not quite sure the range of that uh, dial that they've, they've got. But even if you've got uh, a machine, they say, okay, well, we pay, we, you know, we pay out 90% of the, the money that comes back in. If you hear that without really thinking about it, you think, oh, okay. But then you think, just, just sit back and think, okay, I'll give you $100, you give me 90 bucks back. I'll give you 90 bucks, you give me 81 bucks back, and so on. It doesn't take very long till your money's all gone. And that's how it works. It doesn't matter how successful you have on a night. If you're constantly feeding it in and smoothing your average, you are guaranteed to lose the 10 or 20%. That's just how it works. You can't fight maths. Exactly. Like I say, the whole thing's rigged. Um, and it's... I guess the most upsetting thing about this whole thing, like you said, if you go there, you have some mates, you have some drinks. I've done this. And we go, we're going to slap. Um, we've done it where it's like we've all got 20 bucks each. Who can who can make it last the longest? Or 
who can uh, literally pull out the most. Can you make any money? You never do, but who can make it last the longest and whoever whoever wins, you know, they get a round bought for them or something like that. That can be a bit of fun because you'd go into it knowing, you know, you're not you're not betting your 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 rent money or or your kids' medicine money or anything like that. And that's the problem. That's the biggest problem I have with this. It's, it's so predatory. Um and they're just they're preying on the weak and vulnerable and the desperate. And that's what upsets me the most. And I think that's why I get quite fired up about this subject because I've seen behind the curtain, I know how this works. And unfortunately the, the powers that be kind of don't care because it is in their best interests. Um, obviously, a lot of that gambling money is revenue for the states. So, yes, it's in there. exactly. Yeah. So, it's in their vested interests, you know, and all of that. So, we could waffle on about this for quite a long time, but <laughs> I think it's time to move on. Um, it's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Alright, this man, week, uh, it's a little bit of a bag of mixed lollies. Uh, There's a couple of paths that I travelled on uh, the Two Ticks Town Talk choice for this week, which is bright in Victoria. So I'm going to be a little bit like a moth with a choice of flames, though there is a theme of travelling and returns uh, journeys on this week's story. So just a bit of background on uh, Bright. It was first surveyed in 1859 uh, called Morse's Creek and 1866. Its name was uh, officially changed to honour John Bright, who at the time was an MP for Birmingham in England. Uh, he was a noted British liberal politician and an advocate of free trade. So that's a big plus for him. Uh, it, Bright was born and flourished through the Victorian gold rush, that which ran from uh, 1851 to the late 60s, 1860s. Uh, Bright's economy, though, now is primarily and understandably a tourist destination, and you'll understand why it's a tourist destination. There was a cut-down blurb that I got from the Visit Bright website. Bright is a town with extensive plantings of European trees, giving a naturally spectacular display in spring and autumn. They're the times that draw crowds who enjoy the oaks, cedars, chestnuts, poplars, elms and Japanese maples, and the tall pines and eucalyptus in the mountains. In the springs, the mountains are carpeted with wildflowers. The peaks are still snow-covered, and mountain streams flow with melting uh, ice. After winter, the huh. willows, waddles, plum and apple orchards are bursting with buds and new growth. It sounds very, idyllic. Oh, it sounds amazing. <laughs> it does. It is very idyllic. Um, but on the theme of this thing that we're, we're turning uh, that, that's uh, for the Two Ticks Town Talk, we Go back a little bit to the goldfields and an incident, uh, infamous incident that revolved around people travelling from overseas to the area around Bright, and that was the Buckland Riot. During the gold rush, there was um, uh, a rush to the nearby Buckland River. The gold deposits gradually diminished, and the Chinese miners who'd come into the area for overseas started to go through and sift the abandoned claims. Uh, tensions arose because the Chinese uh, were getting successes from this and the Anglo-Irish uh, miners who were there caused the, the violent Buckland riot in 1857. 
It resulted in the deaths of several Chinese miners, and they basically chased 2,000 Chinese people um, out of the area. So it was an anti-Chinese race riot occurred on 4th of July 1857 in the gold fields of uh, Buckland Valley. Uh, at the time, there, was, there were approximately 2,000 Chinese and 700 uh, migrants living in the, the area. They went through uh, the like went through the, the legal the legal things uh, with it, yeah, you because know, there was there was miners being beaten and, and robbed. The police arrested 13 European accused rioters. However, the impaneled juries acquitted all of the major offences, which was, you know, a popular decision locally. Uh, but the verdicts of the juries were criticised in the press, and the uh, people, uh, a lot of the Chinese miners were asked to come back, but only about 50 of them, understandably, decided mm. that they'd come back on the journey. But the riot was eventually quelled by Beechworth Police, which is, which is nearby, uh, under the command of Robert O'Hara Burke. That's the same Burke who is known for the epic Burke and Wills expedition. Ah. Yeah. So he was, a, he was actually uh, in, in command of that, quelling that, that riot. And, uh, yeah, then later on, obviously, got, uh, got drawn into the, the Burke and Wills expedition. We'll pop, we might cover the Burke and Wills in uh, detail another time. However, here's a, a quick overview. Was organised by the Royal Society of Victoria in 1860-61, led by Burke and uh, William John Wills, being a deputy commander. Its objective was crossing of Australia from Melbourne in the south to the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north. That was a distance of about uh, 3,250k, so about 2,000 miles. And that time, most of... um, Inland Australia hadn't been explored by non-Indigenous people, so largely unknown to the European settlers. Uh, they left the ex- expedition left Melbourne in in winter. It was shocking weather, poor roads, broken down horses, slow progress. Um, the return journey was plagued by delays and monsoon monsoon uh, rains. Basically, in the end, virtually uh, virtually all of them died. There's only one man, an Irish soldier, John King, uh, who crossed and returned uh, alive. So yeah. that's just yeah. That's we might cover that again in another another one. It's it's just it is an it is an epic journey, uh, an, an epic one, and a whole lot of things that you think, what the hell were they were thinking. But as Burke passed through Victoria, across New South Wales and into Queensland, he would have covered the path of our next traveller related to Brighton surroundings, and that's the famous traveller related to the region, which is the Bogong Moth. But Mount Bogong is the highest, it's, it's just near uh, Bright. It's the highest mountain in Victoria, and it's a destination for uh, the Bogong Moth. So it's uh, it gets its name. It's in several Australian Aboriginal languages, but the uh, uh, Duduroa uh, word bugong describes the brown colour of the moth, and that was a local language. The Duduroa 
um, languages. Uh, that was what sort of got me thinking with that Burke and uh, Will's one. Yeah, the in spring the moths travel from various parts of eastern Australia to the Alps, where they inhabit caves. So over they some over summer they go into a kind of uh, dormancy, knowing as known as estivation, spelt A E S T I V A T I O N. So that's sort of like hibernation, but they're doing it over hot and dry periods. Ah, because we yeah. have these, we have uh, 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 bogong moths all the way up here in Queensland, but we only right. have seen them in uh, in really the, the the winter period, the autumn and winter, because um, they're reasonably big. They're, they're yes. pretty easy to spot. So Yeah, they are. They are. At the end of summer, the bogong moths take a second long journey and head back home. They breed and they die soon after that. Um, and then the next generation, not those same moths, but the next generation does the same um, migration. That's one of the sort of mysteries about this. How do you navigate to a destination over a thousand kilometers away that you've never previously visited? Um, I thought that was a pretty uh, amazing, amazing aspect. Well, according of to my wife, you just have to stop and ask for directions. <laughs> when, they, when they when they when the first moths arrive they get in these they find deep dark locations like caves um using their their four tarsi the little um feet to grip onto the rock faces and then later moths settle in um and uh Sort of end up with the in the less ideal areas because they were a bit later. Uh, but to diminish the amount of light that reaches their light sensitive eyes, the later moths push themselves under the wings and abdomens of the moths that arrived earlier and place their hind legs on top of the moths beneath them. And when you see a picture of it, it looks like uh, almost like the scales on an element uh, on an animal, they're just or reptile, they're just so closely packed, uh, and that. Contact allows them to uh, retain body moisture. There's experiments seen done that they reckon the secret to the moth's navigational skills is an internal compass, which they use to navigate the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, they that's speculated that that's the same in a number of many migratory birds. Uh, but the bogon moth's the first migrating nocturnal insect to use this mechanism um so this they speculating that from uh, it's like a person orienteering in the bush that a moth will work out the direction it needs to take using this still quite material mysterious internal compass get a landmark like something like the moon or the milky way uh if that comes obscured they look for something else and head for that destination which is why they get thrown off by city lights um and as man starts to you know encroach on the territory it speculated again i'm underscoring speculation because they're um not 100 sure but this looks the most probable uh they're speculating that's part of the reason that they're seeing fewer and fewer bogon moths ending up in the mountains so some sites they said had sheltered millions of moths 
had literally only a handful of them in 2017. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think uh, quite a few of them died on my patio, whacking huh. their heads into the into the lights repeatedly, as moths yeah. do. Um, I mean, that's 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 how I know that they're up here because they they come flying in from the darkness, chasing the lights and the street lights and all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I would imagine that the artificial light is probably a much bigger problem than we realise. Yeah, well, look, they, they, they spe- they're saying that the uh, droughts in the moss breeding region are a big cause, uh, so the numbers are declining even before the beginning, but that uh, the lights are an issue. And, and Zoos Victoria is t- asking people in southeast Australia to turn off unnecessary outdoor lighting in September and October to reduce the effect on the moths' migration. Uh, the Bogon moths weren't the only things making a journey at this time. Uh, they were historically used as a food source by Aboriginal people located in southeastern uh, Australia. Groups would travel to the area, uh, go towards the summit of the mountains where the caves and the other things were to, to harvest the moths. They also met with other Aboriginal people and this helped foster intertribal relations as people gathered and, and feasted on the harvest. Uh, where did I write? The, that's it. This amazed me. The moth is about 60% fat by dry oh, wow. weight. Yeah. So no wonder no wonder you're hooking into them. Yeah. So, I, I, should, I should eat the ones I find. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you've apparently got to take off the, the, the wings. But, uh, yeah, so they'd go in, scrape the uh, estivating moths off the wall in the nets, and uh, once they got them all, they'd be roasted, get rid of the scales and wings, um, and then either eaten immediately or ground into a paste uh, oh. and made into moth meat cakes that would last and could be taken home. So- Honestly, moth meat cakes sounds disgusting, <laughs> but it is probably one of those things that you get a taste for it. Nothing, nothing probably quite hits like a moth meat cake. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's said, apparently it's said to have a nice nutty flavour that was uh, similar to, to walnuts or, or almonds. Um, yeah, but look, it's no, it's no, no surprise that they uh, went after them with that amount of uh, such good nutrition in them. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, e- easy to get too. You just walk into the cave, scrape the wall, and you're done. Ex- exactly right, and That's- you're also getting to have the intertribal relations. Um, and who doesn't like getting together with people having a bit of a, a feast? That's it. Well, well work, smart, work smarter, not harder. That's what I say. Yeah, exactly. So while attempts are being made to address the uh, reduction in the number of uh, bogon moths, there's also attempts being made to revive the Dudara language in Bright. Uh, that's, an ex- that's now, unfortunately, an extinct Australian Aboriginal language. Uh, as it's no longer spoken, uh, Dudaroa is primarily known today from a bloke called R.H. Matthews, who got a lot of his information from a local Aboriginal man called Nettie Wheeler. Um, Hamilton Matthews was derided, but he became 
later. So he had a bit of a rise and, and fall uh, journey. He was, an, he was an Australian surveyor and self-taught anthropologist. He studied the Aboriginal cultures of uh, Australia, was a member of the Royal Society of New South Wales. He didn't have any academic qualifications, got no university backing, and he supported himself and his family from investments made during his lucrative career as a licensed surveyor. So it wasn't until his early 50s that he began investigations of Aboriginal society, and that uh, dominated the last 25 years of his life. Like He put out 171 works of anthropology, which is 2,200 pages. He had really good relations with uh, local, with, with Aboriginal communities in many parts of South East Australia. And even though he got uh, a thumbs up from abroad, uh, from abroad uh, he wasn't particularly well liked locally. What they mm. call it, an isolated and maligned figure in his own country. There is apparently a very small and competitive anthropological scene in Australia. His work was disputed. He fell into conflict with some prominent contemporaries. That affected his reputation. Um, and it's only been recently that uh, with his notebooks and that being donated to the National Library of Australia that by his granddaughter, that they've looked at his uh, stuff from, from Robert Hamilton and he's made a bit of a comeback journey because it opened up access to significant data that were never published. And now, despite being derided, his work is now used as a resource by anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, linguists, and heritage consultants, and by members of descendant Aboriginal communities. So that was... That oh, wow. was, uh, Yeah, yeah. Everyone. Ah, the- oh, that's the nice little comeback story. It, it is. It is. And in the in the same way that the work of R.H. Matthews made a, a comeback, and the Bogong moth returns to Mount Bogong, the Dudaroa language is returning to the region. It's currently undergoing a revival, and it's being taught at Wiradjuri Primary School and at Bright Secondary College. And that return to the original language of the region that completes our journey of the story of Bright, our two ticks town talk for this week. Ah, oh, cool. I, whilst you've been talking, I've had a virtual tour of the town uh, on Google Maps, and I can see what you mean about all the beautiful trees. Mm. Um, it just, it seems, so, so, you know, to our American listeners and things like that, if you go to Google Maps and you just pick any street and you go there, I don't think, you, I don't think you'd feel out of place and you'd kind of be like, what's so special about this? But the fact is that these are all foreign trees. This <laughs> isn't the sort of landscape that you typically see in Australia. Um, it's it's a beautiful little alpine town that you would find not out of place, I guess, in North America or, or parts of Europe. But that's not what Australia <laughs> looks like. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a bit weird. It's kind of cool though. Have you been? Have you been to? I, have, I have been to Bright. Uh quite a while ago and it was during autumn and it was pretty damn impressive uh, really it's I, I love australian trees i really love gum trees uh I, you know west stringers banksias all, all i really like australian natives but you put those together and you get that display and ah it's just one of those things that nature sort of <laughs> really gets to and you think 
God, that's just beautiful. Yeah, it does look really, really beautiful. Obviously, there is a lot of tourism there because I noticed there is a lot of hotels uh, and holiday parks and things like that in the area around Bright. So it's very clearly quite the tourist destination. So I might have to put that on the list to go and see. Though I don't like the cold, so I might have to go there. Um, well, I guess you have to go in autumn, don't you, just to see the the magnificent oh, display yeah. of all the trees. If you're going to go go in, go in autumn, yeah, mind you, they did have that spring when the um, and this might be a compromise thing for you. Spring when you're actually getting all that new fresh green growth, uh, that's still pretty. It sounds pretty enticing too. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think it would be beautiful, really, any any time of year. Um, speaking about any time, going oh. to places at any time that you need, where, Anthony Albanese, where are our urgent care clinics? So just a reminder, back in May this year, we spoke about last year's election campaign and the government promises and that they had drafted up the budget and included funding for at least 50 bulk build after hours clinics across the country. These clinics would operate from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. with no appointment needed. And the idea is that they would help ease pressure on the stretched emergency departments and hospitals around the country. But as of right now, as of recording, the 10th, the 10th, 2023, less than half of the federal government's promised urgent care clinics have opened. That's not good. <laughs> After more than a year oh. in power, only 23 are open, and the locations and providers for an additional 10 have been announced. Now, I'm under no illusion that these things do take time, but the timeline that was offered was theirs, so they have no reason not to do it. More distressing is of those that have opened, less than half are open till 10 p.m. as promised, with many of them closing at 8 p.m. The budget, this is going to rub you the wrong way, the budget for the bulk build clinics has also risen from $135 million to $358.5 million. But compared to our gambling losses, that's a drop in the pocket. <laughs> Since the election, the government has committed to an additional eight clinics, bringing the promised total to 58. The ABC anal- uh, has analysed and found that 23 that are up and running, nine of them are already existing after-hours bulk billing clinics that were established by the Victorian government last year. The majority of those uh, that they were taken over by the federal government, the Victorian government ceded them to the federal government. They have longer operating hours, but it's a little bit sneaky, in my opinion, that the uh, the government is claiming them as new clinics when that's not quite true but that's how politics works 
Now, the majority of the clinics that are open are in metropolitan areas, and it's a little bit disheartening to see that the location of so many clinics are in metropolitan areas instead of more rural or regional areas. And we've previously discussed, and we know that Australians that live in rural and regional areas generally have worse health outcomes. Though... Of course, the population centres are in the metropolitan areas, so if you're just looking at numbers, you know, that's that's uh, where they're going to be. So when exactly were these clinics due? Labor's public stance on the time frame for opening the clinics has varied. Initially, it was within 12 months by uh, to be completed, which is July 2023, uh, which obviously came and went and didn't happen. I, I don't think that ever would have happened because the budget wasn't there for it until July 2023. So, uh, as you said, they did make that commitment. It wasn't as if they were, you know, forced to choose a, choose that particular date, was it? No. They, they gave us that date. They've since said... Uh, to the end of 2023 has been floated as a possible deadline, though no full commitment has been drafted at that date. The health department has actually suggested it could be as far out as 2024, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably a bit more of a realistic uh, timeline. I think it was very easy for them to jump on the clinics in Victoria because they were already existing facilities that they could take over uh whereas building a new clinic is not that easy i imagine it's kind of like building a small hospital there's a lot that goes into it hiring staff and all of that kind of stuff so um watch this space basically uh in terms of timeline but I mean, as someone that lives in a regional area, it is a little bit disheartening that there aren't more of them that are potentially smaller, that don't have as many, but we're also in a doctor shortage. So I don't put it this way. I don't envy the federal health minister that has to do this. No, <laughs> no that's, 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 a, that's a fair comment. I mean, your, your point that you made about them in the urban areas uh, is you know, getting exposed to the large number of people, I can understand the reasoning on that. I don't think it's really the spirit of the the promise. Um, I also noticed that it was the, in an article that I think it was a similar one that you're you're referencing that most of those are in Labor things. But let's let's not pretend that Labor are doing anything differently that Liberal don't do as well. With uh, yeah, they're all in their their jobs to get votes. I didn't mention that deliberately because I don't think that is a deliberate thing. I think it's just more that it's a bit convenient that the Labor government is currently. Oh, it's in power. deliberate. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know that it is because there are obviously ones uh, outside of Labor areas, of course, but it, most of the most of them are in metropolitan areas. Uh, and currently, Labor holds most seats in metropolitan areas. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so I, I think I, I, okay, uh, a, I think a, I think that's it's a fair comment. Yeah, I think it's easy to say, "Oh, look, they're favouring their own electorates," but almost half of them are in Melbourne suburbs 
because they were previously run by the Victorian government and now have been handed over to the Labor um, the federal government, those are just Labor seats anyway. They didn't even build those facilities. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of, I think this is a really easy one where you can tar with a political brush, but I don't necessarily think that's quite fair. Um, I will if, I will accept that. That's, that's good reasoning. Part of me sort of thinks, are they in the... Um, like the 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 swing, the critical ones, but given I don't know the answer to that, your I take your point. That's a perfectly reasonable um, point. The thing with this that does bother me a bit is where they're going to get uh, the the staffing from. There was exactly exactly. That's why they're closing early. They don't have yeah. the staff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, I'm, and there's I'm not, no easy answer for that. You can build a hospital. No. It doesn't mean that you can fill it with people to work there. Like, yeah, mental. Yeah, I mean, build it and they will come. You'll get patients, but that doesn't mean you're going to get um, going to have have staff there to, to look after it. So, look, I, guys, this is going to be one of these ones where I'm going to have to have some sympathy for the enemy. You, you're quite right. I wouldn't like to make these decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. What I do, what is a little bit frustrating, and, and again, I, I don't know the, I didn't actually pull up the health plan. I, I don't even know if there is one that's publicly available at this point in time. Um, but out, out of the 23 that exist, almost half of them are in Victoria, um, which is a little bit disheartening considering um, how geographically small Victoria is compared to yeah the rest of the country and i know again like i said most of these nine of these facilities were handed over um by the victorian government that had previously already built them um and so i'm looking at it going well perhaps the federal government needs to or maybe they are i don't know uh deal with the new south wales tasmanian south australia there's none in south australia right now um there's one in northern territory well, there's, there's none- two there's none in none. South Australia. None okay. in South Australia. There's one in Palmerston in the Northern Territory. There's two in Queensland. One's in Ipswich and one's in Logan. They're very close together. Uh, and two in Tasmania and three in WA. So, uh, and yep. however many left in, what's that, five five in in new south wales most most are in sydney uh there's one in Wollongong. so i don't know i think this in my mind this is something that really needs uh like money and attention thrown at it this is this is something that's like you know it was one of their election promises they've already allocated the funding like you know let's get on and do it kind of thing um but i don't know doesn't seem to be happening. Nope doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to be happening at at all. Um, and I wish look I know Albo you do listen into the the podcast quite regularly and we appreciate that. Uh, this week we don't actually have a solution for you. Sorry, mate. <laughs> you made the promise. You're stuck with it. Though I do sympathize. I do sympathize with you. I mean, it's it's one of the things that if you are taking the responsibility of um, you know, caring for the nation as as such, I'll probably put in less paternal, bloody sounding things, then it is up to you to find a way to to get it done. 
and given that this is a self-generated promise, yeah, uh, the, that's that's <laughs> that's the thing that goes against them. Yeah, they made this promise. If you're going to do it, deliver on it. Um, it is good that they've expanded the the program t- for another eight clinics. Um, I would like to see this continue to be expanded. I think this idea, um, because I will take credit for this, as regular listeners will remember, I gave this idea to Anthony Albanese on one of our programs uh, at the end of last year. Um so as as the person that came up with this yep. idea initially, I think it's really important that this program continues to expand and continues to spread these sorts of clinics. I think, uh, and I know in New Zealand, as, as regular listeners will know, I have family in New Zealand. I've spent a lot of time in that country. I was over there and they have, uh, I think it was called A&E, Accident and Injury or, or something like that, uh, which was basically emergency. what- yeah, what these clinics basically were, right? Um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Accident and injury. That doesn't make sense. Injury starts with an I, DK. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not in New uh, Zealand, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's backwards over there. Um, but they do they do have these sort of clinics, and I think they're injury. quite prevalent. And I thought, <laughs> hey, this is, this is a great idea. Why don't we have that here? Um, obviously, it is now becoming a thing, but I think this needs to be a program long term, not not an election promise. We did it, forget about it, and that's it. I think this is the sort of program that needs to continue to be funded, continue to be expanded. Why doesn't every town, every town that has a hospital, should have one of these, um, or, or yeah. towns that don't have hospitals should have something like this? You know what I mean? Like it should be something as well as it part of our existing health infrastructure moving forward. Um, and I, what I really am a little bit afraid of is that when this government eventually loses um, and the LNP get back in, I hope they don't just throw this out and want to do something else because I do think this is actually a genuinely good idea. And I do wonder where the uh, some of the roadblocks are. I mean, I'm just uh, – I suppose it was just going around in my head and I think about arguments I've had with um, – people over, you know, government health and that before. So I start to wonder where the actual red tape is, where the barriers are from lobbying. Um, I don't know this, but I'm suspecting that the Australian Medical Association is going to be having their fingers in this little pie as, as well. And the reason I'm saying that is... I think if you start to look at, well, how else can you do it and start to think there's a lot of a lot of bloody skilled nurses out there who, um, you know, frankly, are better than uh, doctors with their L plates on, that you know, if they were given a bit, a bit more leeway, could probably look after uh, a lot more people. There's a lot of pharmacists with a real high skill level um, that can't be necessarily translated into direct help for patients because of those that are artificial barriers. There's the uh, ability of you know uh, remote analysis and telehealth, so that you, for example, if you had let's let's say you had a um, 
one of these set up in uh, who, where was a recent one like Udnadatta, uh, which was yeah a little, little bit out in the out in the boonies, and it had a direct link, and you'd make it, you'd say, look, what we're going to throw at money wise to your clinic out there is a really good uh, satellite link, uh, com- internet link, so that you can have real time high definition um, interaction with doctors who are servicing several remote uh, countries on an advi- uh, country uh, places on a um, remote advice type of, of setup so that if you've got say say you've got an, a, a nurse someone who's still got their L plates on as a, a, a doctor I can't remember how many years you have to, to go through and you know, say the local pharmacist, how much care could they provide if they ran when they ran into a problem? They said, "Oh shit, we're going to have to speak to the the doctor, you know, located in uh, in, in in Perth or or Adelaide, and we've got a very good real time link, and that's enough to get them over the hump. And they may decide that they have to send them on, but they may also be able to treat that person there and give them a good level of." medical care that otherwise they wouldn't have got. I think there's probably ways that you could think about this if you go a little bit outside the box. I think so. I think there's definitely a lot of potential with this sort of uh, uh, program. And like I said, expanding moving forward. You could have a clinic where maybe there's not, exactly like you described, where maybe there's not enough doctors on staff, but there are doctors in a hub somewhere else that can service a number of patients with their experience and the nurses pick up, you know, the the they do the 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 work on the ground sort of thing like that or or some sort of combination of, of healthcare workers. Cause I do think that the big holdup is with um staffing issues i think that the workforce is the biggest problem um because we we already know we've already discussed before that there are a shortage of doctors in australia i think especially sort of like the emergency trained physicians the sort of people that do the 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 trauma type injuries which is probably what you're likely to see a lot of in these sort of clinics as well um and and maybe what we need to do is create a whole new class of like a, a whole new yep. occupation for it and where yep, it's like exactly. you know you're a trauma nurse or something like that we'll call it yep. something new and and you are a unique thing a bit like what we did with with am, ambulance officers right an ambulance an ambo depending on their level of education may be able to prescribe you basic medications mm. they can't do that outside of their role in that specific circumstances, uh, they're not doctors, but they're more highly skilled in emergency medicine. So there's even an opportunity here for, say, you could give part-time work or even casual work to ambulance officers to come into the clinic. Like, so the, I think there's, if you, if you get a bit creative with this, and I wonder, yep. like you said, the medical unions and the lobby groups may be the ones that are really being the stick in the mud here as opposed to what we've just discussed. There might be some massive barriers that they go, no, can't do it for insurance reasons or liability reasons or whatever. Um, And that may be- Maybe the government becomes the insurer. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So there's- Yeah, sorry, go on. You get a bit of creativity. Look, you know- uh, 
and neither of us are politicians, neither of us are lawyers, but if we're coming up with some of these ideas, I'm sure some of these people in these rooms are coming up with, they're not all robots as much as we like to think of them that way. Um, There is a small amount of, of creativity in those rooms. And if we're coming up with some of these ideas, surely they can too. Like make it work, get it done. Yeah, do and what look, you have to do. There's something that I that when I first cognized it, I've never been able to get it out of my head since then, and that's with uh, Fred Hollows, uh, which a lot of people knows the people who's his oh, his restored site to I don't know how many people directly and then indirectly, but the thing that he did, he would go into. Uh, a region. Um, he did a lot of lot of work with uh, with you know, indigenous people here, as well as overseas. Uh, people who had uh, oh, what is it, glaucoma and and other eye diseases that were quite straightforward to treat if you had a particular type of medical training. And mm-hmm. that actually meant the people got their their sight. So what he would do, he would say, "Look, all I have to do is train some local people in this procedure only. They don't have to know be you know have a whole course in anatomy and um, you know the nervous system, everything. I just have to show them. You see this in the eye. You do this. You do that. This goes wrong. You do this and." that will cure most of the the cases. And he was having people trained up locally who were essentially doing eye operations and eye care that uh, would once have been only the purview of of doctors. And it's never left me that. I'm thinking if if you can just train people in a few specialty things like that, it just gives you so much power. And I think there's... A lot of people who uh, you think, okay, well, you don't have to become a full-blown nurse or a full-blown doctor, but if you know how to put in an, put in an IV, empty a, empty a bedpan, do a few basic things so that the more experienced nurse or doctor can better leverage their time, maybe that's another way to get this across the line. Exactly. You know what? From, yeah. so, sorry, Albo, we, we said we didn't, we thought it might be a bit hard, but... I think we've possibly. I think we might have. We've done it again. On the right part. We've done it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, solving the nation's problems here on Australia Talks. But I think you're. I think you're exactly right. The Fred Hollows Foundation and the work that he did while he's whilst he was alive and that has continued after his death uh, is a perfect example of a highly skilled procedure that, once it was boiled down into its simple components, could become quite a simple procedure. I think it was cataracts it was this thing and he was replacing the lenses in their eyes that or was, something yep, something that like that a, yeah that was another one yep um and something that would normally take someone incredibly talented and skilled like he was at many many years of learning blah, blah 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 he could teach someone to do it and it's like you can only do this but you can do it well you don't have to be a master of everything just just you know and i think there's something to be said for emergency clinics that just do you know even if it's just there's one bloke who does x-rays and casts you got a broken bone or suspected having a broken bone go see bob over there in the corner he's got his x-ray machine he'll x-ray it he'll but do the plaster cast if if that's what you need and we can send you back on your way 
or maybe we'll x-ray it. It turns out that's not it. All right, back in the line, you know, we'll move you on to the next person. I know they do this in hospitals. It's called triage. It's a thing. I don't know why we can't just do the same sort of thing, get people trained up. We've got a lot of people that are willing, that are, that are needing jobs. Um, pay people well. You can get anyone to do anything if you pay them well enough. Um, in fact, have, have people in the town on call. If you say, okay, well, look, yeah. you know, someone's, someone's coming with a you know, bloody green stick fracture to the, the, the leg. Okay, let's just, let's, let's just give, um, you know, Mary, Mary a call. She's the one that's good with, with fractures. Um, and that might be the only time you need to call someone in that night. The rest of the time, everything else is, is handled by it. And then one night you get somebody who's who's got a problem with their eye, needs to do that. Like, oh, okay. Well, you know, well, get Barry in. He's the one who does, who's had the bit of eye training and he's just on, he's just on call. There's, that's another possibility. I, I really like that idea of the community looks after itself in yep. that we each person has their own set of skills and, and strengths and weaknesses and that sort of stuff. But together, as a community, uh, we can kind of fix most of the problems that are going on, like a lot of small towns do today as it exists. And I don't know why we can't take that sort of mentality and expand it into um, this sort of clinic or something like that. Um, I'll tell you what. Well, I think we've done it again. I think there you go, Albo. There's another. There's another freebie for you. You got. We'll give you to the end of 2024. I want to see all 58 of these clinics up and running. Uh, with what did we say the hours were? 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. We want all yep. of them up and running by the end of 2024. And for our listeners, I am a hundred percent going to come back to this. I need to know huh. where this is at. Um, I'm deeply invested. But speaking of things that I'm deeply invested in, what's going on this week in Australian history? Right, this week in Australian history, we're covering 3rd to the 9th of October. Uh, October 3rd, 1950, pitting Australian and British forces against communist China, the first battle of Mariang Sen in the Korean War begins. Oh, that turned out so well. Uh, the, the Korean War. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 1952, uh, the first British nuclear test is conducted at Montebello Islands in Western Australia at the invitation of the Menzies government. And we never got the technology as a result of that, which is for another day. Um 1985, the first Australian Formula One Grand Prix is raced in Adelaide. Uh, I think this Adelaide, I saw my first Grand Prix and just blown away by how quick and how loud those cars are. Now, that's not saying anything. You know, people who've been, they understand that, but it was a real eye-opener for me. I've never seen any machine go that quickly with a human in it. I've I've never seen him in real life, but I want to. I've I've been to other races, um, yeah, like V8 supercars and stuff like that, but never the Grand Prix. Yeah, it was it was impressive. Uh, Nineteen ninety eight, the John Howard led coalition is returned to power at federal election, um, and nineteen ninety two, a Victorian state election sees Jeff Kennett and the Liberal Party defeat the incumbent Labor government of Joan Kerner. October 4th, eight, oh, I didn't know that was that old, 1888, 
The Prince's Bridge over the Yarra River in Melbourne is officially opened. That's quite a nice looking bridge, not particularly ostentatious, but um, still impressive. It reminds me of one of the bridges in London. I don't know what what bridge it's called, but it's very similar in design to it, which is probably not too surprising, quite frankly. Um, we probably yeah. copied it. <laughs> well, probably. I, you know, certain de- designs. Um, if it works, why not bring the model, do the cookie cutter thing? Exactly. Uh, 1935, on October 4th, Luna Park in Sydney is officially opened. Well, that's a 1935. I knew it was old, but that's uh, older than I thought. Been ages since I've been to Luna Park. Um, not really burning desire to get there, but I do. No, no. Yeah. I used to like the rotor, that one where you would um, stick to the <laughs> stick, oh, to, stick to the sides, to the yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, just with the uh, – I can't remember whether it's centrifugal or centripetal. It's one of those ones that people say, oh, well, no, actually, it's not that. It's the other, and I get lost in that, so just stick with centrifugal. <laughs> but you'd get, you'd get people, people up there, and because being Lunar Park and being kids, there just wasn't enough um, sugar – and um, hot dogs and junk that you could chuck into your mouth. And unfortunately, once that uh, force started going on, <laughs> things yeah. things things would come out in totally expected manners. <laughs> I do remember looking across at one poor unfortunate bloke and unfortunately the centrifugal force basically gave him a mask of his own vomit as it came out, and I thought, oh, oh, glad I'm not next year. But it just serves him right. <laughs> it just out and it went and just straight over his whole head. Poor bugger. <laughs> <laughs> but look, you know, bloke to bloke, it was pretty bloody amusing. <laughs> As we tend to find these things. Um, October uh, 5th. Um, 1990, after 150 years, the Herald Broadsheet in newspaper in Melbourne is published for the first time as a separate newspaper. The first edition of the Herald Sun appears on the 8th of October. And on newspaper-related things on the same year, the Daily Mirror in Sydney is published for the first time as a separate newspaper. So the first edition of the Daily Telegraph Mirror appears on the 8th of October. October 6th, um, 1810, a town plan of Sydney was published in which the streets were given new and permanent names, including Market, George, Park and Barrack. 1862, the Melbourne Zoo is opened. And I, I suppose it shouldn't surprise us, but it it does often surprise me just how old a lot of these zoos are. We've covered the... Um, I can't remember you had in one something that you had mentioned about the, the uh, oldest Hyde Park. zoo. Yeah, it was yeah. in Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I've never been to Melbourne Zoo. Uh, I've driven past it, but I've never been there. Yeah, I've been. I've been a couple of times many years ago. Um, I enjoyed it, but I haven't been. Well, last century was when I went. Nineteen oh three, the High Court of Australia opens in Melbourne. Nineteen eleven, compulsory voting is introduced. So that's always an interesting topic. <laughs> um, 
1978, rock and roll singer Johnny O'Keefe dies. It's longer than what I thought he was around. Um, October 7th, 1798, George Bass and Matthew Flinders leave Sydney to explore Van Diemen's Land, which later became named Tasmania. Um, 1830, the Black Line campaign of the Black War begins in an attempt to capture all Tasmanian Aborigines. The campaign lasts seven weeks and only succeeds in bringing two Aborigines to the authorities. Oh, gee, what a pity that failed. Um, <laughs> You've got to be embarrassed after seven weeks. You only get two people. Like, bloody hell. Yeah. I mean, what a terrible, horrible black scene on the Australian history. But um, it's... But yeah, it's fun to poke some fun at them. Yeah. Uh, 1941, John Curtin becomes the 14th Prime Minister of Australia. October 8th, um, ha, 1899, the word wowser is first used by John Norton, who is editor of the Melbourne Truth newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) It feels weird that, like, words... Someone said a word for the first time. I, I mean, of course, we know that for every word, of, you know, naturally. Uh, but it just seems weird, especially when we know exactly where they came from. Like, yeah. Wowzer was first published <laughs> by John Norton. Like, what? I don't know. <laughs> uh, 1908, the capital of Australia was chosen, settling a feud between rivals Melbourne and Sydney. So and they that never was, fought yeah. ever again. No, that's right. It was all kumbaya from there. <laughs> <laughs> 1939, Paul Hogan, um, actor, comedian, and former rigger, was born in Lightning Ridge, New South Wales. 1939. Wow. How's, how does that make him now? What's he's 80, 84. He's 84. getting on. Yeah, wow. he's looking old these days. Yeah. Well, as you would with 84. Well, yeah, I mean, he's had good innings. Bloody oath. Yeah. 1978, Australia's Ken Warby sets the current world water speed record of five, oh, 510 kilometres per hour at Blowering Dam in New South Wales. I So I went down a God. rabbit hole, and I'm going to keep this really brief because I know how big this topic is, but about uh, the water speed record – uh, because Ken Warby actually died this year in, in February, and I remember seeing a post okay. about it. Anyway, so I went down this rabbit hole of of people trying to beat his record from the 1970s, even himself, and it's it's borderline impossible, and so many people have died trying to do it. The world water speed record of 510 kilometers an hour is unlikely to be broken anytime soon, but there are a lot oh. of people trying. It's it's a whole rabbit hole of a topic. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of a, a, a teaser as to why it's unlikely to be broken? The biggest problem is boats like to go on water, but... <laughs> Obviously, um, <laughs> but when you're traveling at 510 kilometers an hour, your boat is going to act more like a plane than a uh, boat. Right. And unfortunately, 
that sort of speed is absolutely phenomenally quick and you kind of have to be mostly out of the water to, to even get to that speed. The problem is you want your boat to not be a plane uh, really? and so frequently it does and uh, or there's a, a slight ripple in the water that basically shunts you up in the air and your boat yeah. flips and, you know, and before you know it, it's a million pieces and so are you. So that record... People have been trying to beat it, but like I said, I don't think it's going to be just because it's so dangerous to go that fast on water because water isn't, uh, you know, it's a moving medium uh, mm. compared to like the land speed record and, and, and or the air speed record kind of thing. So um, good on Ken Warby for setting the record. What an absolute lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> but 510Ks. I don't, yeah, I don't just... think it's going to be broken anytime soon. Well, well, that's what, what, what are we? Seventy-eight? Um, is that forty-five years? Well, who knows? Who knows what someone's going to invent? But um, good yeah. luck to them. <laughs> people, I know it's people not have been be me. trying. Yeah, people yeah. have been trying. Also, uh, what I think is really cool is the the boat that he broke the the world record in is called the Spirit of Australia, which is kind of cool. Ah. I thought you were going to say he was buried in it, but okay, Spirit of Australia. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, at least some cultures have um, those really interesting coffins. Yeah, that might be a, a racing car, or I, I don't know whether you've seen pictures of of that. It's a it's it's almost a sort of celebratory, commemorative thing, and the coffins are all very you know, bright and uh, different shapes or themes. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but. Um, yeah, yep. so that's that's what came to my funny little head. Okay, October <laughs> finishing off October eighth in two thousand and four, <laughs> Chappelle Corby is oh, apprehended by police course. in Indonesia carrying four point one kilograms of cannabis in the boogie bag. In the boogie board, and now uh, weirdly, because Australian culture is fucking backwards sometimes, she's like <laughs> a massive celebrity. <laughs> I don't know. We're a weird bunch. Yeah, it's a bit weird. Uh, on the home straight, October 9th, 1888, Launceston, Tasmania is proclaimed a city. Um, 1891, the ceremonial mace is stolen from Victoria's Parliament House, Melbourne, and no, I didn't look up if they ever found it. I have to do that for another time. Hmm. I'm sorry, listeners, I can't shed any further light on that one. And uh, rounding out October 9th, 2004. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, it, you, it has go, never go been found. I just oh, quickly okay. Googled the missing mace and it immediately took me to the Parliament of Victoria website and there's a whole page on it and it says at the start, on Friday 9th of October, 1891, a daring theft was reported. To this day, the mace has never been found. Oh. It's, it's also huge, mind you. I mean, I know our American listeners won't really understand, but like, in in the parliaments in each state and federally and like in the UK they have it as well where the mace is the um, 
the basically the crown's representative because the king used to have to come to parliament, but they didn't want to do that because they're the king. So they would the mace represents the power and authority of the crown inside the chamber. That's the whole point of it. Um, these things are massive. They're like mm. I don't know five or six feet long. They you know they they're overlaid with gold and stuff. But I imagine they're made out of like m- some sort of metal. Okay. It wouldn't have been easy to steal, is what I'm trying to say. No. Um, in fact, no. it's never turned up. It's kind of interesting. It's probably in some bloke's backyard somewhere, buried. Yeah, that's right. They're very, very ornate, and they usually have a picture of the uh, monarch on the, the front, and the house speaker sticks their hands up and does it like a little ventriloquist dog. I declare the parliament open. Public. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right, yes. <laughs> in fact, he might even say, God again, one of the hardest things to say as a ventriloquist. The, um, the, the, <laughs> I do remember a few years ago there was a there was a a big hoo ha in the British Parliament because one of the parliament one of the uh, ministers grabbed the mace and attempted to leave the chamber with the mace, which would mean that the chamber would have to be closed for the day and no longer could proceedings could no longer to continue because the crown's representative isn't in the room, um, and so it was a big hoo ha about grabbing the mace and all that kind of stuff. So occasionally the mace like these things I know. This all sounds super antiquated and backwards, probably to our American listeners, but it's a big deal that this thing was stolen. The fact that it was never replaced is kind of interesting. So, um, it, it does say that the mace was replaced because, of course, Parliament couldn't couldn't continue without a mace. Um, so they did have a smaller wooden mace that they replaced it with uh, until they could, I guess, commission a new one. So. And that rounds out the history. And what would you find on top of a gottle gear? <laughs> I need a beer. That's all I know. Now, I actually have two. Ooh, two. Okay. Well, the first one's really easy, and you're gonna you're gonna get them. You're gonna get it. We haven't mentioned it. It's become a bit of a tradition that we mention this almost every episode, and we I noticed we haven't mentioned it. I think for three weeks, so I had to bring it back. Uh, which Australian Prime Minister disappeared in 1967 whilst swimming? Oh, God, old, old Harold Holt gets a... Yeah. Well, I suppose he's part of Australian folklore and there's a lot of things connected connected to him. But, yeah, Harold Holt. Harold Holt is correct. We have brought up Harold Holt a lot in this podcast and we haven't for a while, so I thought i gotta, I got to bring him back. Um, but the real question this week is a jumbuck is Australian English for what? Oh. What is a jumbuck? Yeah, why am I? Hmm. Now, I'm not. I'm not I, I can't give you any hints because no, no, you, no. Because I'm, 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 I'm saying mentally saying waltzing Matilda with me. Yeah, you, where's that jolly jumbuck you've got in your tucker bag? Yeah, I, I'm going. I don't to know that that would help you, if I'm honest. Well, I was going to say it's. Oh no, that's right. I thought I've always thought it was a lamb, but it's not. It's not a lamb, is it? It's a male sheep. So a lamb being a, a baby sheep, it's close enough. I'll give it to you. Oh, oh. Yeah. So a jumbuck is a male, a male sheep. Um, it's not Ooh. common vernacular that much anymore. No. I, I I feel, but there you go. Jumbuck is used. 
think there's a car called a jumbuck. Um, yeah, what an yeah. Car? yeah, I think so. I think maybe Holden made a jumbuck, or or maybe it was. Oh, what I'm trying to think of that, which obviously doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. <laughs> or maybe maybe it was a you. You're looking at, you're looking it up. I'm, I've googled it. It was Proton, the Indonesian car maker, made a jumbuck. It's huh. a small. It's one of those small uh, Utes, a bit like the Subarus. That the you know the, the Subies had a Ute uh, oh, back in the day. Yeah. It's a little yeah, bit like yeah. that, about that size. Like it's yeah. Anyway, there you go. I was sure. I'm sure there was a Ute called a jumbuck. Um, oh, well done. You were right. Anyway, on that weird ending, thank you thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you so much. Good night. And tell your mum I love her. See you, TK. See you later.